What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Brutally Speaking... You know what? No. It's not just welcome to another episode. It is welcome to the 250th episode of the Brutally Speaking Podcast. We are halfway to 500, Dan. We're getting there, dude. Eventually, we're gonna go. I, uh... Man, 250 episodes. I know it seems like sometimes we we just celebrate any milestone over here as an excuse to have a few cocktails or whatever. But uh, 250 episodes, I think that is a huge milestone that you know a lot of people don't think they're going to hit when they start something like this. Uh, it's basically been four years. Yeah, dude, it's been um, it's been a minute. I mean, I haven't been in it that long, but yeah. you've been here at least since episode 100. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So I'm I've been in it longer than I haven't been in it. This episode's guest is Jesse Zaraska of Misery Signals, whose latest record, Ultraviolet, comes out August 7th. Holy shit, what a record. What a comeback record for this band. Uh, For those maybe who aren't familiar with how much Dan and I are Misery Signals fans, go to discography discussion. We talked about it. And in it, at the time, this record wasn't even on the horizon, really. We just kind of left it with Absent Light, kind of going, well, they did the reunion tour with Jesse... Now what? Yeah. Yeah, I remember it, it definitely ended on a cliffhanger. <laughs> and uh, and that's good. That's that, I, I'm glad that, that we kind of, at least in our own way, get to kind of be a little bit of a part of this. Yeah. I uh, So a little backstory about this, too, and I know I, I kind of talk about it right up front in the interview, so I'm not really spoiling anything too much. But it's uh, I started the correspondence with Jesse to get him on the show July 27th. Or 28th of 2017. So it is of now, as of when we're recording, July 7th. So almost officially three years to the date of when I started corresponding with getting Jesse on the show. And the amount of things that I had to wait for <laughs> to make this happen. Um, just so you're all aware, I was privy to pretty much damn near everything that has been going on in the Misery Signals camp. And just fucking couldn't say anything. And... I'm really glad that, you know, Jesse trusted me with a lot of the information. Uh, and I'm really glad, actually, that we waited to have this conversation because I think we were able to do something more special with this episode, kind of being able to bookend it with the new record and, and talking about where Misery Signals is in 2020 versus what we would have talked about and where we would have ended it at the time. Well, yeah, dude. And, like, th- what I loved about this the most, other than, like, oh, my God, it's a Misery Signals interview was just the fact that like um i discography discussioned it well we discography discussioned it first like we laid that we laid the foundation you know um but what what i really love about it is just the fact that like it was an old school john's untitled podcast style deep dive into you know into into his past into those integral years when he was not in misery signals you know, and, and, and that he was very frank about all of it. Like, I didn't, I had no idea that he was kicked out of the band. I didn't either. <laughs> that was new. I mean, that was new information. Yeah. Like, I was like, dude, seriously. Like, and I wish, obviously, that we could expand on it somehow. But I mean, what else is there to say? Um, he's back now. So that's, that's what matters. It's, uh, it was really hard, uh, doing this because a friendship has been formed over this three years now. And I know leading up to it, you know, Jesse was kind enough to send me the lyrics to the record so I could kind of talk a little bit more about that, even though the few notes I made, I, I don't even think I brought up. But it was definitely a thing where I wasn't sure if I really wanted to ask some of these questions because it was the questions I wanted to know as a longtime fan as I have been. But I 
also didn't want to set up like a friend to be embarrassed or whatever. And I just was really worried that that's sort of maybe how it would be taken initially when I asked some of these questions. Because I, as you'll hear all hour and a half of this conversation, uh, I asked some really hard questions um, for Jesse to answer. And he didn't back down. You threw him off a couple times too. And that's my favorite thing to do as an interviewer is just throw some wacky question out there that they're not expecting. And that's how, you know, you got to throw them off guard. You got to stagger them a little bit. And then you get the answer that, uh, you get the true answer. Yeah. I, I definitely think for longtime misery signal fans, I think a lot of longtime questions, especially if you've seen the documentary, especially if you've kind of been following the band over the last couple of years, a uh, lot of lot of long seated questions have been answered, and I felt a sense that I needed to do to ask those questions. And I, like I said, I was really surprised that Jesse was so frank and honest about it. Uh, even to the point where at the end, you know, after we stopped recording officially, and I was like, "Yo, do you want me to like send you the final thing, like so you can hear what it sounds like, maybe take something out?" And he was like, "Nope, I'm good with everything I said." And uh, you know, it may not necessarily be what. Uh, everyone wants me to say, but it's how I feel. And that's why, you know, I take ownership of the things I said. And uh, I think, you know, that was one of the most uh, most in-depth interviews I've ever done, uh, especially since being back and doing interviews. But he, like you said, he, you know, it, it really made me feel really good when he was like, I think this is going to be the one that a lot of longtime fans are, have been wanting to hear and just haven't yet. So, yeah, dude. And, um, well... I can't say anything, but, uh, you know, the the cool thing is, is that, like, I really felt an old school kinship, you know, like, one of the reasons why I started listening to John's Untitled podcast back in the day, well, originally it was just because I was like, why does this guy have the same guest that I have this week, <laughs> but, um, but I, what I liked is the in-depth nature of the interview, you know, and, like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to split hairs here, you know, um, you know, sometimes we do interviews and it's very obvious that we're just, like covering a press cycle you know or something like that and it's not that it's not even that this isn't that because it kind of kind of still is um but this was so like this reminded me so much of when i first started listening to your interviews john and whenever i was like yeah we can really get into some stuff and it get really it get really hardcore it get really raw in places and um and this episode like it's cool that we're here at episode 250 and we're still kind of getting to that you were still we're still going there yeah this is a long enough chat and it's it's pretty real so i think without further ado let's get into this conversation with jesse zaraska of misery signals and we'll talk to you guys when we're done with it I have the pleasure of welcoming back Jesse Zraska, vocalist of Misery Signals, whose latest album, Ultraviolet, is out August 7th. Man, it has been almost three years to the day um, since we started corresponding on July 28th of 2017 to have you come on and uh, at the time just talk about, you know, the reunion tour uh, and the documentary that came out as a result of it. But 
man, there has been so much that has happened since then. Uh, and I feel like it's actually kind of serendipitous that we get to kind of talk about everything. So uh, welcome back. And I'm so excited to do this with you. <laughs> Thanks for having me, buddy. I appreciate the patience. Uh, but yeah, like you said, I think it's probably it, it might have worked out to our advantage. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, it, it is kind of wild that you are officially the longest person I have gone after to get on the show uh, and to finally have it happen. So I feel like it's like just a big milestone where I'm like, I finally, <laughs> it finally happened. I mean, I know we had you on a little while ago to do the top five albums thing, but you know, this is really the uh, the crux of why you were supposed to come on in the first place. So, well, Johnny, Johnny, I'll say, I'll, I'll say, sorry, and 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 thank you. So. You know, I kind of wanted to, uh, you know, just kind of ask the initial question just to kind of, you know, because we're talking uh, about a month before this this record comes out, um, or a little over a month, I should say. And how does it feel to finally have some new music coming out? Like, what are you feeling currently right now in, in the moment now that, you know, there's been two singles released and, you know, there's there's new music with you out and on it uh, in the Misery Signals camp? Uh, at this point, I mean, after having released the two singles... Uh, I feel more excitement, I guess, than anything, whereas previously to releasing those two songs, I probably felt a greater sense of maybe fear than anything else. Um, yeah, just it having been so long since we put out any, mu any music together, um, I just know that there's going to be a lot of comparisons to the stuff that uh, not only what we did in the past together, but also what they did without without me, without Stuart, without Kyle, Um so there's yeah there's uh there's a lot of excitement now that people have been quite accepting uh of and, and and very excited themselves about the record. So right now things are are feeling very good Johnny. It's been a long process. So we're we're all very happy to be at this point now. Yeah, you know before we kind of really go a little bit further into ultraviolet, I kind of want to go back. Um you know, sometimes it's interesting in getting to, to interview some of these people like yourself who, you know, you and your time in Misery Signals kind of existed when the internet wasn't really what it is now. Podcasts weren't really a thing like they are now. So kind of a longer form interview based kind of thing didn't exist. So it's kind of hard to kind of get real information straight from the source. So, you know, something that was kind of interesting as I was kind of thinking about this and starting, you know, all those years ago was, you know, when you had announced that you were leaving the band and, and if memory serves me correct, uh, you had announced that you were leaving the band and basically starting up Sleeping Girl, uh, which had some members of Compromise, which was your former band in it and then release some music. But I, if I remember correctly, I thought that you had kind of said, actually, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself there. So let me ask, what exactly led you to not want to continue on in Misery Signals anymore, but still want to continue on musically with Sleeping Girl? Well, I mean, ultimately, they kicked me out of Misery Signals. And when it came time, I guess, to announce that via, you know, um, Lamb Goat and uh, the magazines and such like that, we just sort of took the easy way out. They just announced that I was going to leave to do Sleeping Girl, which there was truth in. I, I was doing that side project with my brother. Um, and I think it was just an easier softer way for us to, to, to part ways than for them to say that, that they, they kicked me or maybe I don't know maybe it was somewhat cowardly or something on both of our parts but when they released that uh those statements I I, I didn't go against them because I guess for me it was it was an easier out than to face the music I guess of, of having been kicked out and it was simply 
yeah, I guess easier for me to come back here and just be like, yeah, I'm doing Sleeping Girl. I'm going to university and and that's it, you know. So there was some truth in those statements, but there was also some, you know, uh, some some hiding of the the real truth, I guess. Yeah, it's always interesting because, you know, obviously the whole point of it, any press release when it comes to uh, something of that nature, it's always, you know, best to just take the high road and kind of make it seem like everything was as amicable as it could be. You know, hey, this person's not going to be going forward with us. We wish them the best. Here's the new project. So you kind of get... Uh, in whatever capacity social media looked like back in 2006. Uh, so maybe MySpace. Um, you know, at that point, it kind of was a thing of, you know, maybe trying to parlay some fans into the new project, um, which kind of does make me wonder. I do remember also in that press release, from you anyway, that you had said that basically Sleeping Girl was going to be a continuation of, uh, lyrically, of what you were doing in Misery Signals. And I kind of wonder, with the kind of finite timeline that, you know, Sleeping Girl existed, did you find a lot of Misery Signals people coming over and checking out because they wanted to kind of hear more of the quote-unquote story that you had to tell? Uh, I mean, yes. Yes and no. I mean, as you said, like, internet is not as big of a thing at that point. A lot of sort of the homegrown audience that we had here in Western Canada for Compromise and Seven Angels and Misery Signals they were already following Sleeping Sleeping Girl on some level because my brother and Brent and Braden had been had been doing it and had released an album uh, prior to me joining, so they were already sort of this entity entity that was known within our culture within our group. So um, yeah, I, I think that you know I, I hear from people now saying that once. I left Misery Signals. They checked out Sleeping Girl and, and such because of it. But at the time, it didn't feel um, like there was a whole bunch of momentum behind us due to Misery Signals. It's always interesting because, you know, for me, I always kind of enjoy following the various offshoots of bands uh, because I think it gives a, a broader sense of the influences maybe that, that aren't there that you hear as, as readily in the main band. But also sometimes as a result, you're actually able to then kind of pick apart who's doing what when you kind of come back to the main thing so it was kind of interesting you know going back uh and thinking about you know you have members of compromise which that was your old band and then but it being kind of a different thing so it was sort of like just this really interesting time period to kind of remember as a fan of of you and, and of misery signals and just kind of being like i vaguely remember i vaguely remembered the bands and just remember being like huh it's not really musically what misery signals was but it and going back it kind of allowed me to kind of see more maybe vocally where some of your ideas kind of came from because they were a little bit more i wouldn't say i don't know if abstract is the word i want to use but just kind of a little bit maybe left of center from what you would expect uh with some of the phrasings and all that kind of stuff that you were doing. So to me, it was kind of interesting to to try to remember that time. And I actually tried to go back to the MySpace page and listen to some of the music and I was not able to, uh, to do such. Yeah, you can, I mean, some of it's like available on YouTube and those guys actually are just in the process of writing a new record now with the original lineup, which was uh, with Braden, the bass player from Compromise. And so they have put some of the stuff back up on Spotify and Apple and stuff just, just recently. Um, my brother is also, or I mean, is, is a main, the main songwriter or a, a huge contributor to that band. And I think him and I having grown up in the same household and having the same influences, uh, probably a lot of, uh, we probably do a lot of, th- a lot of things similar, or we, we think we probably think musically similar at times. So, um, some of sleeping girl, yeah, that you might think was me might, might be my brother. And, and that's just because.
because you know, we, we come from the same place a lot of the time when it comes to music. Fair enough. You know, what was kind of interesting, too, and you sort of hit on it, was, you know, you were going back to university, and which is still kind of interesting to, to call it that, not college. But, um, you know, going through that, in addition to trying to, you know, still be doing the band thing, you know, were you finding it just kind of too hard to balance going to school and trying to do a band even in a part-time schedule and kind of just dedicated more to being you know, a, a career basically of the career path you're trying to go down? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's kind of one or the other, right? Like when I when I started going to university and, and when, as I got deeper into the first couple of years of that, it became apparent that if I was going to, if I was going to um, follow that path, I had to commit fully to that path, right? And to, you know, I could still create music, you know, and do art on the side, but it was on the side and something about that was, was not appealing to me. Um, after doing misery signals and compromise and, and being a young person that was so driven by their art and so committed to it on that sort of level, um, to do it on a, a lesser level just didn't seem appealing to me for, for a long time. So, And I was also so hurt and messed up after misery signals that I didn't want to really be in a band with other people anymore and... Um, I was kind of of the mindset that I'm going to become a teacher and I don't have to rely on other people for my happiness or for my success, that sort of thing. So there was sort of a chip on the shoulder, I think, kind of thing in those early years for me as well as I was committing to university and, and kind of maybe um, holding a grudge towards music or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, this might be a really odd parallel to make, but, you know, something that was kind of interesting in thinking about, you know, going through my school career uh, and thinking about how we got some teachers, student teachers and so forth, and just kind of thinking back to some of the nerves that, you know, they would have uh, trying to teach a class for the first time or even, you know, a first year uh, teacher and kind of the growing pains that they went through of trying to find their way of how they're going to teach and how to connect with people and so forth. And I kind of wondered, did you draw from your experience in playing in bands and being the vocalist and frontman of a band and kind of having to win over strangers, essentially, and get them to pay attention to you? Do you did, Were you able to draw from that to kind of help you maybe get a leg up initially when going into teaching? I think there's a great relationship between being, uh, you know, the singer in a punk rock or a hardcore band that is is trying to deliver some sort of message and then doing the same thing in the classroom. So, um, you know, there was a relationship there and I'm a fairly shy person by nature. So it was always a challenge to get on stage and and perform and as you you know suggested same thing with being a new teacher. Uh, there's a lot of nerves behind that. Um, so, yeah, I would say that it was to my benefit that I had experienced um, years on stage kind of forcing myself to do that. <laughs> it helped me um, in those. Yeah, it definitely helped me. It's such there's such different worlds, though, right? Like uh, it was in ways like starting over again, because over the years I was able to slow my mind down on stage and, and I learned to sort of appreciate it more and enjoy the moment Um and sort of control myself better, you know, control my nerves. And in those rooms, as you know, like, you know, it's, uh, there's a lot of similarities between all of us that are in those punk rock spaces and, and hardcore spaces. Whereas when I went to university and started teaching, um, I definitely felt like an outcast. Uh, I was, you know, 
and older. I know I went back to university at 26. <clears throat> I was older than a lot of the people around me. And I came from this punk rock background that at times um, yeah, made me feel out of place in the university environment. It's funny, as you're kind of saying that, though, something I've been saying, because I never went to, to college at all, just kind of was one of those people that toward the end of my high school career, I kind of was like, I think I'd rather just get practical experience and nothing that I was interested in need, like the few things I was interested in, I knew were going to be oversaturated markets anyway, as far as trying to get a job down the road. So it didn't seem worth it to go into a whole shitload of debt uh, to try to be a psychologist or a teacher, an English teacher or anything like that. It was just like, yeah, everyone wants to be that. So I'm just not really wanting to go and do that. And then on top of that, it's the it's knowing that no one's going to hold you accountable. No one's going to force you to have to go. So then essentially, you're just wasting your money and more importantly, your time when you're not going to be serious about something. So I've always kind of had that mentality with things where I think if I were to go, it would try to be now where I have more of a I want to do this. And I understand the opportunities I have to expand and grow as a person and how it will apply to what the ultimate goal will be, which is a different career path or whatever. So I almost feel like it might have worked to your benefit and a lot of people's benefit maybe to go later in life where you're actually going to get more out of it. For sure. Absolutely. I mean, had I gone to school when I was 18, 19 years old, um, you know, I was an angsty, uh, messed up young fella. So I would not have had success in, in, in that realm. I would just have very likely would have quit, right. Or wasted, as you're saying, wasted money and time. So for sure, it, it did work to my benefit to go back when I did. And, um, I'm very glad that it all panned out the way that it did, you know, even though <clears throat> the end of misery signals and stuff was, was very challenging. I, you know, to look back now, it's, it, I see that, uh, it all worked out. It all worked out. So I'm, I'm happy it did. You know, something you had kind of touched on and was actually kind of a, a transitional uh, question off of off of what I had asked initially was, you know, it kind of said that being kind of in a punk rock hardcore band where, you know, it's sort of about the message that you're conveying and getting across, you know, in you doing that and having that experience, is that kind of also what led you to maybe want to teach and shape young minds growing up and kind of help them along that path? I think most teachers get into the profession because they want to change the world on some level. They want to do um, positive things, you know, and I think that as I got older and as I started to realize um, and yeah, as I started to get older and, and create records as a, you know, uh, 20, 21, 22 year old guy, that became very important to me in that capacity as well was to, to release music that was... Um, you know, going to have an impact on people, you know, even as dark, I guess, as some of the lyrical content and stuff of the early compromise stuff is and malice is, um, there's always some of that kind of light at the end of the tunnel kind of thing. And, and I always did it. To, it was always, you know, to, to some level of catharsis, I guess, for me, but also uh, I think we all recognize that that kind of art and that kind of music helps young people a lot too, right? And and connects with young people. And I shouldn't just say young people, just connects with people and, and helps people in general. So, yes. You know, given the fact of your age and kind of the, the end of both kind of compromise and uh, misery signals at the time, did you ever have any parents or maybe even students eventually that 
you know, especially as the internet became more prevalent, that kind of looked you up and were like, oh, wow, holy shit. Either I knew of the band or I didn't realize you were in a band, let alone of the caliber that it was. Yeah, I mean, just lots of different um, things through the years, because when Carly and I first start teaching, we move 10 hours away from here down to a small farming community called Stoughton, uh, which is an hour and a half southeast of Regina. So very close to the American border, very close to the Manitoba border uh, in just absolute prairie Canadian farmland. So when we went down there, we were completely unknown. And for the first month or so, I was just Mr. Z, this the city kid kind of thing. But of course, yeah, um, kids find out and the internet exists. So they find out pretty easily nowadays. And in a small community like that, you know, I taught in a K to 12 school. So you had, you know, all the brothers or sisters were in the same school and their cousins. And so as soon as one or two of them found out, it was like wildfire, right? All, you know, very soon, everybody knew that, that Mr. Z was in a rock or had been in a rock and roll band. Um, but it was always to my benefit. I mean, the kids were always very excited about it and stoked about it. And I think for the most part, most parents were as well, right? Um, I taught high school English and stuff down there. And I was able, yeah, as I said before, it definitely was to my advantage. It, it never hindered my career in any way. I think it helped me in a lot of ways for sure. After after teaching down there, for after being down there for five years, um, we were 10 hours away from home. So family and friends, we wanted to get closer back to Edmonton. So we accepted a couple jobs in a town called Maidstone, which is only about two hours from Edmonton. There again, uh, it was a smaller community and same kind of thing. You know, they found out pretty quick about who I was. And by that time, we had done Malice X. So there was, I guess, more information on the Internet and such about me. Then two years ago, when we had our daughter, Mazzy, uh, we sought to come back home to be with uh with with family and friends and grandmas and grandpas so i accepted a job teaching music here in saint albert where i live now um last year and at that point i was literally teaching kids uh and parents would come in and they you know they would they were misery signals fans or you know um had seen misery signals in the past and um it was yeah very, very, very cool to be able to come back here and teach and, and have those experiences, not only with the kids, but with the parents and stuff. So, yeah, as I said, never, never hindered my profession. Uh, I think it always helped me in general. I just always think it's funny, you know, I was kind of in when I initially had thought about, you know, the fact that you were a teacher and it was something that I kind of wanted to pursue when I was younger. And thinking back to some of my favorite teachers and, you know, like finding out that my football coach, who was also our math teacher and so forth, played guitar and was like in a band back in his youth and so forth. And it was just like, oh, wow, you kind of don't. It's almost like your parents to a degree as well. You don't necessarily look at some people in some professions beyond what they are. You just assume a teacher is a teacher. That's it. You kind of forget that they're people and that they have lives or had a life, you know, prior to what they, they them becoming a teacher. And so in thinking about that and thinking about how I thought of some of my teachers that I got to know as people, thinking about how that would have applied to you and wondering if your students kind of did the same. And it's like, oh, wow, I didn't know. It's weird to say this. Mr. Z uh, basically, you know, was in this band and it's, you know, in this vein of maybe something that I'm into or whatever. Because, you know, sometimes, like I said, you, you kind of as a kid, you don't look at adults, even if they're only potentially eight to 10 years older than you, which in the grand scheme of things isn't that that much time 
but you, yeah, right. you don't think of them as being like, well, they wouldn't listen to what I'm listening to, or they don't understand what it's like to be me or in my my era right now. And like I said, you just kind of forget all of that until you get older and you're like, no, they're people too. And they have interests and hobbies and so forth and probably lead an interesting life. So it's just, I don't know. It was kind of thinking, interesting thinking about that and how it applied to you considering what you've done. Yeah, for sure. And I think now like we're living in a time where, where we are teachers in general can be a little bit more open and honest with, with about themselves. Right. Like I think nowadays, when I go to teacher conventions and stuff, there's tons of teachers just with, you know, full sleeves or like chest tattoos. And back, I think when I was a kid, that stuff was, I'm not saying teachers didn't have tattoos, but it was, it was, I think, hidden. And I think that's just a general metaphor or whatever for, I think in general, I think that profession, I think teachers maybe hid more of themselves in the past, you know, and nowadays I think we can be a little bit more open because I think society's a little bit more open about a lot of things. Well, and I also think it, no pun intended, I think it teaches us that you can learn from all different kinds of people in different backgrounds, and it should be kind of how it is. You shouldn't have to hide things about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. We learn, we can learn from from all different sorts in this world, so we, we should. You know, I don't really know that I've seen you talk too much about your writing process uh, over the years. Are you someone that, you know, writes constantly, whether it be for song, just, just to write, just to write ideas down, maybe write, you know, poetry or something? Are you someone that is constantly writing? Yes, I always, I always wrote, like, from a very early age. Um, just my folks were super into music, so I was, I was super into music from a, a very young age. And words were always an important thing. So I'd always study lyrics. You know, my dad collected records and I then started collecting records and tapes and CDs as a kid. And words were definitely a a huge thing to me. And I journaled a lot um, through, say, my, you know, adolescent, you know, through through my teens and adolescent years and stuff, I journaled quite a bit. And I think that helped develop a voice in a lot of ways. Um... I quit school before I went to high school, so I did not really develop my writing um, in those years where where I should have. I read a lot, a whole bunch um, in that time, and then then joined Compromise and joined Misery Signals. Um, And through those years, I guess, uh, you know, I wrote poetry on some level as a teenager, and then I got into bands pretty young. And then I was always one of the people that contributed lyrically early on. So, you know, it was it was a process. Um, and once we started doing compromise, then you know that was you know my my, my biggest focus, I guess, was to to create to me almost more important, I guess, than the development of my voice. Almost, you know, like what was to say important things lyrically. And into misery signals, you know, I think that was even amplified. It just it could continue. It became more and more important to make sure that what we were saying, what we were delivering lyrically, was 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 good. You know, uh, was impactful, was memorable. After misery signals, as I said before, like I was just so pissy about everything. Uh, I did not do a whole bunch. Like I, I helped with the writing of that next sleeping girl girl record, and then I got so focused on school that. Um, I was writing, but I was writing essays, you know, I was writing, uh, all sorts of different sorts of formats that I had not been exposed to a whole bunch. So those years in university definitely helped me develop as a writer. Um, but I didn't write a whole bunch of poetry or, you know, stuff in those first few years. 
I think in my third year of university, I started writing short stories. And then that's sort of where my creative writing um, was focused for those years. And for, you know, for a number of years, I guess, through um, the Malice X kind of time, I was still writing fiction quite a bit. And then when we committed to doing this new Misery Signals record, um, you know, that sort of coincided with with me having uh, a daughter, having my daughter, Mazzy. And then just, you know, I haven't had a whole bunch of time to continue writing fiction. You know, the time that I have had to write uh, has been dedicated largely to Misery Signals. So, yeah, it's um, it's something I've always taken seriously, Johnny. It's something that uh, that, that I care a great deal about and something, something uh, yeah, that I just try to get better at, man. Absolutely. Is there ever, I mean, you were just kind of saying there toward the end that you, you know, write, you were writing short stories and so forth. Has there been much of an idea to maybe write uh, a book or release something down the road? Is that something you would like to challenge yourself to do? Yeah. So during, during those last few years when we were living down in Stoughton outside of Regina, I started writing short stories. When the Malice X thing came up, I decided that I would release a batch of those short stories. So I released a novella and three short stories in this collection. I self-released it and brought it on the Malice X tour. And um, it sold very, very well. Like we just, I made 500 and I sold 500 on that run. And since then, I've been at work on my first novel. And I'm, I'm close, but like I've been close for about you know, a year or a year and a half. It's just, as I said, hard to, hard to do, hard to do misery signals and do that. Like I really, as I was kind of suggesting before with school and, and stuff, I kind of have to commit to one thing. So the, the fiction writing has, has kind of taken a back seat over the last couple of years due to misery signals, but um, I'm still chipping away at it and I hope to have it done. Yeah. Kind of within this year, I think it's, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about it. So I, I hope to get it done soon. Yeah, it's been kind of fun. You know, I know uh, no no surprise to anyone listening to this podcast. Uh, obviously, being a big Eatsid fan, the two books that Keith has put out has been interesting to read. And I'm um, actually today getting a book from uh, Lindsay from Cold, who wrote like a self help kind of uh, guide book kind of thing with some like stories and so forth in it, which should be here today. So I'm kind of looking forward to getting into that. But it's always interesting to to get some of these ancillary avenues of uh expression from people because you know there's what we read as fans through lyrics or what we gleam from interviews that you all have done but i feel like there's something a lot more intimate uh when you read something that's been put maybe not so much anymore pen to paper but you know the theoretical pen to paper there seems to be something a lot more intimate about that where you kind of really get to to see the inner like how someone's brain kind of works and the things that they think of and you know it's interesting to be able to see someone start something completely different because it's such a isolated experience of you writing a book you can't go to somebody else necessarily and go hey man like i'm kind of stuck on this stanza can you uh can you help me fill in this gap real quick uh you know because we have this deadline for a song or you know whatever for a record so like i said it's just kind of always interesting the process of of writing like that and like i said i think it's always interesting when i'm able to get some of these books from people who i've long admired in in the musical field uh and just kind of seeing their creativity in a completely different facet yeah and i think it's 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 cool to be able to read people's words and 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 
get their ideas and their thoughts that they've been able to really develop, I guess, right? Like when we read an interview or like when I do interviews, like it's kind of nerve wracking. I'm in my head a lot of the time. I don't think that I'm answering the like the questions, you know, as the best I could or something like that. Whereas when you're writing, like I can look at that piece of writing, you know, a thousand times before I, you know, press submit or, or whatever. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just another, another avenue, as you say, of, of getting, uh, into artists' brains, I guess. So, yeah, I think it's, I think it's really cool. So I know a lot of people probably would like me to dissect, uh, Malice quite a bit. And I feel like you have done that quite a, quite a lot on the reunion tour. The documentary kind of goes through quite a bit of the heavier side of that stuff. <laughs> And I know a lot of other interviews I've seen recently kind of, you know, reflect back on that time period, given the fact that, you know, it's basically the that lineup of the band coming back now. So I'm going to kind of gloss over that and kind of move forward once you're not in the band a little bit. Um, did you keep up with what Misery Signals was doing uh, when you were gone, especially maybe even the Mirrors record, especially? No, um, as I, I was just so mad at the afterwards that... Um, yeah, I, I did not speak with those guys for, for quite some time. When Mirrors came out, I did not listen to it. Uh, I, I guess it wasn't until Controller that, you know, I really started to hear things. You know, like I would hear things at parties here and there, little bits. Um, but no, I did not actively seek out to, to listen to those records um, just because I was, I was pissy. I wasn't, I wasn't uh, emotionally ready to do it. You know, something that I've not really had the ability to to do this, to talk to someone that was a founding member of a band, and then basically that person leaves and then comes back into the fold years later. What is it like, especially as the vocalist, when you potentially are seeing somebody else sing your songs, your words? What is that like? Um, Because... I it's such a weird concept to wrap your head like for me as someone who has never done it I've never written anything that someone else has then used um so I and, and something so vulnerable as lyrics especially given you know some of the lyrics that are on Malice when you finally you know you said you kind of were paying attention around controller era did you see Carl perform any of the stuff that you had sang like you know is it weird to see someone else sing some of these songs I mean you know it, it's it was surreal the first time it was always strange um i think that in ways like they kind of cut ties with malice after iowa especially with the they didn't really play summer or five years in those first few couple years i think right like when they wrote mirrors and toured on mirrors they were largely just playing that record and they would play a couple malice songs but they weren't playing summer they weren't playing five years and i don't think they played those two songs for like maybe a couple years i was gonna say looking at the set list behind me from 2013 those are the last uh last three songs with uh uh some or uh, something was always missing uh in between right so it took them a while to add them back into the set and i think that was like out of respect to how personal those songs were to me so i didn't have to kind of, i didn't really have to uh, deal with those ones, you know, being the most personal to me. If if I had watched them perform those or something like that, that might have uh, been harder. The first time I saw them, yeah, they weren't really playing any of those songs. It was at uh, Warped Tour in Calgary, and it was yeah, just very very strange and odd. Um, 
And as time went on, it, it got easier. You know, as time went on, our relationships healed. And after a few years, uh, you know, I would join them on stage and I would do the year summer ended in June or something like that when they came through Edmonton or when I was living down in uh, Saskatchewan. So it was just... There was a lot of distance for a lot of time, so I didn't have to be exposed to to those situations, and I didn't expose myself to to much that would irk me. And uh, they were, you know, fairly respectful uh, about, I guess, trying to maybe preserve my part of the band or something by not playing those songs early on. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it was fine. I think that they did what they could to to continue on. And um, as challenging as it was for me, it was I was happy that they that, that they continued on. I didn't want to see everything that we had put into that band at that point just end. Um, it sounds like maybe not so much around the era of mirrors, but were the were you ever tapped to come on and do a guest vocal spot just to kind of you know like Killswitch did it when Jesse left and Howard took over in the on the end of Heartache? There's a song where Jesse comes on and kind of does a I think the chorus is on the on a song you know just to kind of showcase that there was no like bad feelings, no bad blood. You know, everyone kind of was able to split amicably as possible. Um, was there ever talks of having you come on and do anything on any of the records? Mainly, I would say Controller or even Absent Light. Well, not until Absent Light, and, and I think because our relationships were so strained through those years that, um, you know, they just wanted to cut ties and and, and start fresh with Carl, and and uh, that makes sense, I think, because because Malice was so personal to me, I think, and because it's hard to say this. <laughs> I guess I played a fairly big role in that first uh, inception of the band, and for them to sort of continue on, they just wanted to, to you know, to start fresh at that point. Um, and then, as I said, we just never communicated for for a long time, so there was no opportunity for me to ever sing on mirrors and control or same thing. Like I did not talk with them much um, until until Absent Light, you know, came about. Um, and there was talk about me doing the one song on there, uh, the two solitudes or the one, the one with, uh, Mackie singing on it. So there's one okay. with Todd Mackie from with honor singing on it. Yeah. There was a little bit of talk for a period of time that we would both sing on that. Oh, wow. Um, I was resistant to do it a little bit still cause I was maybe still pissy, but also cause I just hadn't sang mm. for a really long period of time at that point. Um, so it was, and I was down in Saskatchewan and stuff. It, it was just, it was just kind of a, a, a challenging situation that never came to fruition. That'd have been tight. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Todd, Todd Mac, Todd Mac, he's one of my favorite singers of all time. So uh, I, I would have really loved it if we had been able to to pull that together. And it was not like there was, you know, ill feelings or anything between all of us at that time. Like Greg, you know, they, they were again a totally new version of the band, right? With with Greg and Pump Jack playing. Um, so I, I would have been happy to do it. It just, it just never panned out. So I know we're kind of, you know, talking about the past and a little bit about, you know, some of the fans, uh, what they've kind of thought or maybe would have asked, you know, during this time period. And something I was kind of thinking about is, you know, we, on this podcast, we talk a lot about bands being signed young, doing something from, you know, their mid to late teens as they're still developing into as who they will be as people and kind of being thrust in, in some situations upon getting signed and, and the, the, the label system and having to create a product now and thinking about things that aren't as pure as we made music because of the love of it and it inspired us to create. And as such, 
it kind of made me wonder you know, once you were out of the band, did you maybe grow to be tired or resentful of being tied to the band and that people couldn't see you beyond just this band person? Never resented my time in the band. Um, music was just always so important to me. Um, and even even though Compromises ended the way that it did and Misery Signals ended the way that it did, um, yeah, I was just thankful to have those experiences because they were just... That's all I wanted from the time that I was a little guy and to have been able to, you know, tour and, and write records and put out records and tour more uh, was I was just thankful for it. So it's a weird thing, right? Being um, in a band and being in a successful band or a semi successful band and then to lose that just to, I mean, anybody who has any title or any success in life to uh, all of a sudden lose that is a challenge. I had, I resented the guys, you know, I resented um, some of the situations that we had been put in or had put ourselves in, but I didn't resent playing um, in those bands or, or making those those songs because that was very important to me yeah i wasn't really sure which like adjective i wanted to use to kind of convey the thought i was trying to get across so i mean i had tired and resent (laughs) and that was the only two that sort of made sense with where i was trying to go with it um i think tired you know i think i think as i you know as i suggested before like i was tired at the end of those experiences at the end of of misery signals i was frazzled or whatever so um it was it was probably healthy for me to step away and and to go to university and do that stuff at that time um and yeah i guess tired is a good you know i didn't i didn't pursue art on on near the same level for a long time so yeah yeah i think that a tired might be uh more appropriate word than than resent out of curiosity i know we kind of touched on it a little bit already but how was there a bit of a process to figure out who you were to yourself in that time period? I think that's an ongoing process all the time, John. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> um, I think I think you know. I, I, uh, in hindsight, I look back now and I see that there was uh, great amount, a great amount of growth for me personally in those years. As I said, like I dropped out of high school and then. I just was so hell bent on on doing rock and roll, and that was all I focused on. And I went through these very traumatizing experiences, um, you know. So when I went back to university as as a twenty six year old guy or whatever, I was I was dumb. Like I didn't I didn't I had life experience. I had traveled the world a whole bunch, you know. And because I had read so much as a young guy, and through those years, you know, I wasn't a complete dumbass, but. Um, you know, I was, there was a lot of growth in those times and I don't just mean intellectually, you know, but also, also emotionally, um, going to university and especially being an English teacher, you know, you're exposed to so much literature and so much literature for me, um, has, has helped me to grow, has helped me to relate to other people and other experiences and, um, yeah, super thankful for, that time in university and, and those years, because it, it did make me, I think, a much better person. And then during those years, too, like helping to raise my little brother, Liam, um, was was another thing that helped me grow, I think, quite a lot in, in those years and, and yeah, just become a better man. Mm. Yeah, it's always interesting. You know, I kind of have been talking about 
looking back on on who we are as people and, and, and myself included because you know thanks to the advent of facebook and so forth and you know keeping photos and such you know we're all kind of a bit nostalgic to a degree so you know when facebook pops up a, a memory from almost 10 years ago and you're like holy shit like i can't believe i did that or you know you think of the things you've done that maybe have made you who you are but you just didn't kind of realize how impactful those moments are. I mean, I guess everything kind of is a collection of little moments that create a, a bigger moment. Um, but it's just, I don't know, maybe it's getting ready to turn 36 and being closer to 40 and kind of thinking about, you know, being, you know, something I think is kind of interesting now is thinking about like my parents had me at like 24. I definitely don't think I was ready to have raised a child <laughs> at 24 and thinking about my life in comparison to other people, other things. And I think that's just kind of something we kind of tend to do as we get older is you kind of start evaluating a lot more things and taking everything in and just kind of figuring out what it all means and how how it can make you be a better person and someone who can just constantly keep growing and adapting. So like I said, I, it, in thinking about it, it just was one of those things where it's like, you know, how much of uh, you did you realize, like, you know, was changing and all that kind of stuff at that point? How, did I realize in those years that I was changing? Uh, I mean, maybe. Did you? Or did you realize that maybe a change had to happen to be who you wanted to be now that a band thing was no longer what you were more interested in at the as your main focus and main drive? I knew that the person I was then and how angry I was, was not something that could, um, continue on. And I knew that it was not a healthy way to be. Um, I've always been a pretty angsty fella. Um, my upbringing and my, my childhood, <clears throat> my childhood was, um, was pretty messy. Mom and dad, uh, my father was a, a very abusive man. So, Growing up, uh, I was I was always pretty pissed off, and I brought that angst into my you know first first years in in, in misery signals, and it was uh, it wasn't good. And, and I mean, and the, the the crash and stuff didn't help either, right? Like I, I I bring in all this this sort of messed up childhood, and I'm just a pissed off kid. I get into hardcore bands, which is good, right? Because that's what a lot of us do to, to, you know, scream out our, our, uh, our sorrows or whatever. Um, you know, and then the unfortunate thing of the accident occurs and, and, and traumatizes me further or whatever and messes with my mental health more. And then, you know, join misery signals and do my best to kind of, uh, heal myself the best way that I knew how to was, you know, to, to scream, to scream out those feelings. Literally, I mean, the title or the, you know, the, the name of the band Misery Signals is um, as much as I, as an older person, kind of cringe when I say that <laughs> name. Like, but now if my principal asks me or, a, you know, a student asks me or something, what's what band are you in, Mr. Z? You know, I I I reluctantly say misery signals, you know, not because I'm not proud of, of what we've done, but I just, you know, the name's a little bit goofy to me or something at times, but it's true of what that band has done. It's true of, you know, what we were doing early on. And it's sort of true of the best versions or the best um, bands out there that do heavy music, right? It's, it's a lot of the most effective and great heavy metal and hard music is is people you know screaming about their sorrows you know and, and and we as I said earlier right it's something that we can relate to something that we like to relate to and something we can learn from. Yeah, I definitely 
as unfortunate as it is to to kind of admit this, I have come to grow to really understand a lot of the things you went through that you speak on uh, on Mal of uh, of Malice in the Magnum Heart. Um, you know, losing a friend, a couple of friends actually in a span of like a month and so forth. And you know, it's honestly really hard sometimes to listen to some of those songs because it makes me think of my friends that I've lost. Which I mean, speaking, you know, preaching to the choir here, but. Um, you know, loss is loss, and it's, you know, as I've gotten older, those songs are some of the only ones that make me feel like there is the same emotion that I feel actually conveyed and put to words and music that makes sense for how I feel. So, I mean, for that, I don't think there's, I mean, not saying that you are ashamed of it or you feel kind of silly about the, the name or anything like that, but I, I think uh, I couldn't think of a, a better band name to be more on brand uh, for what the lyrics and so forth convey, especially on, you know, those first, that first record. Yeah. Well, th- thanks buddy. <laughs> um, kind of moving ahead a little bit, you know, we're now approaching the 10 year anniversary of, Ma- uh, of Malice in the Magnum Heart or Magnum 10 uh, or Malice 10, as you guys are calling it, actually. How long had you guys actually discussed doing this reunion anniversary tour because i i know from booking shows that things don't just happen like you're like today going like hey let's do a you know two week run of shows cool we'll go ahead and do that next week <laughs> right so you know at that time i'm uh i'm down in stoughton i'm in my like third year of of teaching very just invested in that and in those, you know, that year and the previous year, we kind of start talking more um, just via the internet, you know, just chatting on Messenger and stuff like that. And I think one day Stuart is the first one who um, maybe kind of jokingly even just said, hey, we should do some shows for, for the Malice 10 year. Um, but nobody, nobody um, thought it was a bad idea. And I think through the next kind of year, the the initial idea just kind of grew to um, where we all I thought it was a good thing and I think thankfully luckily those guys were just doing their absent light uh, tours at that time they didn't tour a whole bunch for that record but they did come through Regina where I was at that point um, and we just had a had a good time Ryan and I and that was probably the the first time in like you know the better part of a decade where Ryan and I had a good time together. And uh, I think maybe that was sort of the point where it was like, okay, yeah, this, this can happen. This, this probably should happen. Um, And then, yeah, we just, we just continued to talk about it and it just kind of came to, came to shape. It's, it's kind of interesting, you know, like that's how a lot of it starts is usually someone kind of, prose is a, a pseudo joke and then everyone's just like well that's not a terrible idea <laughs> so i think that as the years went on it it became uh you know more and more important to me to um have another opportunity to do this i think it probably became more important to them to maybe bring me back and and sort of put a good ending on the story rather than um and sort of like just us selfishly going our own ways, you know what I mean? And just being like, ah, too, too, too bad. Like we're, we're, we're close. I mean, we're like brothers. It was, uh, hard things that we all went through, you know, when, when we were young. And as I said, I was a messed up young guy. So I don't, uh, frown on those guys for not being able to deal with, 
my sadness and my sorrow and my mental health issues and all that. But Stuart was my childhood friend, right? Stuart played in compromise and, and I grew to love the Americans. Um, <laughs> I, I cherished my time in that band. So just glad that we were able to, to uh, get all together again and do what we've done. Kind of speaking to, you know, a little bit about you know the brotherhood of the band, uh, Mixon, uh, Matt, ended up joining you guys to start what would become the documentary f- about the tour, kind of uh, a little behind the scenes of, of the record and kind of what it meant to all of you individually as the people who made it. Um, and, you know, kind of, I don't want to say rediscovering, but, you know, I think a lot of fans maybe, because if I'm being honest, I think Absent Light, I think the lineup changes and basically Absent Light and the lack of touring behind it really just kind of had the band kind of maybe fall out of the peripherals of a lot of people. Um, so when this this 10-year anniversary thing kind of started getting announced and the dates were happening, I think it kind of reintroduced the band back to a lot of people who maybe had forgotten about them. And, you know, I kind of wanted to know what was what was it like uh, to have everything be filmed? Because as you said earlier, you know, you're, you're a rather, you know, shy person by nature. So it would seem kind of weird that, you know, you're starting to do the rehearsals and so forth for this this uh, run. And then you're also having to have Matt sit down with you and kind of dig up, you know, old memories from when you were writing the record and touring and so forth. In addition to getting ready for the shows and doing the shows. What was that process like? Because you were, it seemed like you were out of all of, out of everybody in it. You seemed kind of to be the one that didn't want to do it the most, uh, with the, as far as the sit down interviews and so forth. <laughs> um, I, I think that I was probably, I can't say that, you know, I think we were all going through some pretty crazy emotions and stuff during those times. <clears throat> um, but I know personally myself that it was uh, an extremely challenging and, and crazy thing to be a part of um as i say in the in 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 the dock like it was hard enough to go back and to sing those words again that was um emotionally trying or whatever then to try and and come all of you know physically get myself to the point where i needed to be to sing again i never i never screamed in a band for a long 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 time um so I you know I ran my my butt off and I worked out hard to get myself into a state but I never practiced with those guys prior because I was down in the middle of Saskatchewan right um so to come back and and uh have those shows be the success that they were and to go back to a lot of these settings these literally <clears throat> playing venues you know where I played where when we were kids um playing venues where maybe Ryan and I had our had arguments or or serious conversations um it's all this stuff was happening in this very condensed amount of time you know within within 2 weeks I was constantly reminded of all these things that happened in the past good and bad so it was a very emotionally uh, it was a roller coaster of a time. And initially, I wanted to, I had pressed Mixon to sort of do a compromise, Seven Angels, Misery Signals, history documentary. And he just thought it was going to be too much work. And so he said, you know, I'm just going to come and film the shows. Like, let's let's get that experience documented. Um and so that was our, his initial idea, but I think that when he he started to see the situation and the um, 
the friction that still existed in the band, the drama, the natural drama that was there. Him being a filmmaker, right? Him being a filmmaker, I think it was just like, oh my goodness, you know, like uh, I better tape this, you know. Um, Mixon and my relationship is 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 a little bit different because he's Ryan's best friend, right? He's Ryan's childhood friend, and so he's making that film, um, you know, from his point of view, and. and I was at that point, you know, earn, if I'm yeah, being honest, I guess like, you know, trying to, to, to uh, not cause waves, uh, you know, I'm, I'm back, we're doing Malice X, I'm, I'm so happy and thankful to be in these places as much as it's been like emotionally trying and stuff to be there, I'm so grateful to be connecting with the kids again, or not kids, the grown men and women <laughs> out there, um, you know, so I didn't want to rock the boat in any way. Um, so when Mixon, you know, would request to 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 chat, you know, um, I did it. And maybe I seem reluctant or something in those interviews, but I'm not really reluctant. I mean, I'm reluctant in the in the fact that, as I said, I'm a shy person, and it's kind of a weird situation for a shy person to be in under the microscope like that. And then, given the history of the band, you know, that was obviously amplified because it was um we were talking we were talking about um challenging things and talking about challenging things that that we had not really discussed previously and that we were just literally going through so i think mixon as a filmmaker had had the um the sight to see that holy smokes this should be recorded and uh you know i don't love everything in that film but i'm i'm thankful that he documented that time and i truly believe that if he had not done that and he had not have made us have those conversations with him and with each other uh the band would be done there would be no misery signals i think the thing that was interesting about it to me was i think other than some of the chimera dvds uh that they would put out when they were doing their making of records and so forth i've never seen a documentary really present what being in a band is like, good, bad, and everything in between. Uh, at times, the the Misery Signals one was very hard to watch, um, especially, you know, there was the show, I don't remember where the show was, but you were, you know, driving yourself basically the whole tour, um, and it looked like you weren't going to get there on time, and it's just the other dudes kind of basically getting pissed, Ah, uh, fuck it. I knew it. This is this is exactly what we went through before. Da da da. Same old, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, like I feel for them because you know it's hard not to be like, oh, I get it. I get what it's like to kind of have someone constantly in it, and not really necessarily a better way to say this, but I feel like they're just constantly letting you down, and you're like, ah, fuck. You know, I gave them another chance, and here we are again. But here's then, this pre here's this prima donna singer late again. We'll see. And then the other thing, though, that I think the documentary did a good job of showing, and almost right away, but also makes it very awkward because it doesn't feel like something you should be seeing as as a fan. Is some of your I don't want to call them ticks. Um, just some of the things that you because of the things you've gone through. These are the things your processes to you know do things to be able to do this run with them and so forth. And so to me, it, you know, when they're having that conversation and you're, you're not there yet and no one can get a hold of you or whatever, it also felt like, well, come on, man. Like, you know, this dude's been through a lot of shit. So like, why are you also getting like, why are you not going like this sucks? 
but we understand why this is and we need to maybe learn to be more supportive and figure things out so we can all work better together. And I know like maybe these are things that have been discussed since, but because that was like you're saying was so raw and in the moment, that was kind of how I felt about it where I was like, man, like I understand why Jesse maybe feels the way he has over the years, but I also get why the rest of the band has felt the way they do based on things that have happened. And it was just such a raw and real honest look into a band's life that it was at times so hard to watch because I was like, I don't know that I should know any of these things. <laughs> but then I think it also gives me and a lot of people a broader respect for what you all go through as individuals and together to go out on that stage for that 45 minutes to an hour and what you really, you know, had to go through to get there to perform and, and to be there for us as fans. And in that regard, like you said, and, you know, I think Mixon did a great job of realizing and kind of putting himself in a, in a really, really tough spot. I mean, these are some of his lifelong friends and he has to kind of stay out of it to a degree to, to be able to get it. And I think he did a great job of making you see the full spectrum of everything uh, with that. And I don't, <laughs> I don't know that I would have been okay with some of the stuff that's in there either i think i remember actually texting him at the time and i was like so are you okay with me kind of like speaking to something i thought was kind of a little bit egregious to leave in there and he was like sure whatever and then i was like yeah i don't think you guys should have left in some of the shit about carl like i don't think the fact that carl wasn't even on it and there's talks about things to deal with him and his position in the band and he's not even there to say anything about it i was like i kind of thought that was shitty and it's that's the only gripe really I ever had with that is I didn't feel like that was fair to him just because of how much that documentary allowed all of you to kind of speak good, bad, or indifferent about each other. But the fact that the other people in theory had probably already had those discussions with somebody and then the other person was able to speak their own side of it. I felt like that was just the only thing about that documentary that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah, I no, I completely understand that. I think um, none of us walk away from that documentary unscathed i don't think (laughs) i don't think it makes any of us look pretty in any way um you know and i didn't see it until it was done and i think mixon kind of did that for a reason because i think he probably knew that i would not be overly happy with it but you know misery signals is this uh very truthful entity is this very uh is a band that people connect to a moment Emotionally, and I think that that's a band that um, we try to lay ourselves out on the table and wear our hearts on the sleeve on our sleeves, and and that that film for the most part does that right. Like it just yeah, it does. Does, doesn't really hold punches. Like it just it 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 shows as you said the good, the bad, and ugly of everything. Um, you know, a filmmaker has a narrative. You know, they choose a narrative. They. Cho- choose what scenes they're going to use, what scenes they're not going to use. Um, some of my qualms or problems with that film is that I want it to be more focused on on Jordan and Daniel and the history of compromise and stuff. And sometimes I think that it's too focused on that, uh, and like the drama, right, of, of me being late to a show. I think maybe too much time is focused on that and, I, and, I, and um, other things are left out that, that probably should have been highlighted more, in my opinion. And I agree with you about the Carl thing. Like, it's, it's, um, he should have been given the opportunity to, to speak 
his side of the story because there are many different sides, right, to the Misery Signal story. We all have sort of our own uh, version and our own experience, and they're all all totally valid. So, yeah, that's it's a, it's a challenging film, I think, for for every one of us. Um, <clears throat> I don't think that I'm unhappy that it was released, but there's parts of it that. Uh, that I'd done. And there's, there's great parts of it that I'm not proud of or something. Yeah. It, uh, it was, it was one of those, I watched it the one time when he pretty much had like this, the final cut done, I think. And I was like, I don't think I really ever need to watch this again. I think, I, I think it's awkward enough that I will remember it and I'll remember how I felt watching it that I don't really want to watch this again. Like if there was like a, if it was a DVD and I could just watch the live performances, I probably would do that, but then I have the Rain City sessions that you guys did, so I pretty much get the best of that, but it's like I don't have to experience the awkwardness that that kind of put me through. I I don't know if it speaks to the empathy that I feel for all of you, where I'm like, man, I just, oh, man, I feel all of this, and I don't want to feel it, because it's... Oh, it's so tense. Like I just don't it, do well with ten, like tense situations. Like you know, a lot of the Ben Stiller movies, I'm always like, God, this is so awkward. But like, something funny is gonna happen, so it'll sort of make it worth it. Where it's like, this is like, man, this is really tense, and I hope this this there's, ends there's soon. There's no relief. No, there's no relief. <laughs> no, I know, dude. It's it's uh, it, it's it's cringy, I guess, as the kids say. Um, I applaud no, you guys it, though for for being willing to to release it, even if under the circumstances maybe you didn't get to see the it until it was already released. But in that regard, not I, until it was released, like like I could have I could have put a halt on the whole thing at the end. But I mean that's another thing, right? Like Mixon is is a new filmmaker at that point. Like he's our 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 good friend. Like he's their childhood friend. He's put his heart and soul into this thing. Um, you know, it was his art. It was his creation. So. Uh, I didn't feel it was my place to step in and be like, no, no, you have to do it this way and you have to do it this way and you have to paint me this way because I'm not happy with how you make me look. Right. Um, and, and there was definitely like some of that in my brain, right? The first time watching it, like it was super hard to watch, as you say. But um, yeah, I don't I don't think it paints every, any of us in the best light. Um, and it does show some truths to being in a rock and roll band and touring in a van and all the things that uh, go along with that. So I'll, I'll take the good with the bad. You know, kind of moving forward on from that, at what point, you know, because the timeline gets a little shaky here as far as what was released and then, you know, between becoming friends with Greg and, and talking to Mixon a little bit and then subsequently talking to you over the years now. When when was there talks of having you come back beyond just the the malice to uh ten year run? It's just a slow, weird progression. Like, I mean, we do the first run of Malice X stuff, and then uh there's a few month gap in between those summer shows and which and the next set of shows that we were able to do just based on like I think Stewart's comeback kid and stuff stuff, his commitment and schedule with comeback kid. So we did those July, August shows or whatever, and then we do two shows in December, and those are a California date and a Texas date. So there's you know months in between that first batch of shows, which go extremely well, right, and ends in New York and Toronto with like two of the best shows we ever play in our life, and you know uh, everyone loves us and and everything's perfect again, everything's really really good, and then we get to ride that wave for a few months, right, and and. Absent Light, like they they put it out. They do a couple small tours, and then, as you said, they kind of get they kind of fizzle out. 
and and Ryan has two children during that time period. He can't focus as much on misery signals. Stuart and Kyle are gone. Kyle comes back. Like it's just this very tumultuous time within the band. Um, sorry. So now I lost my train of thought. Uh, basically just kind of painting the picture of what is going on as to when you're starting to be welcomed back into the fold. The original lineups kind of being resolidified. So after we play the Dallas show, I remember Ryan and I speaking a little bit and just being like, hey, maybe we should write some new songs. And it was not anything beyond that. Like, it's not going to be misery signals. It's not even maybe going to be all five of us. It was just, hey, like, let's change, uh, you know, exchange some riffs and see what happens. I'm still very dedicated to, to doing teaching full time at this at this point. Um, he then, you know, we, we kind of changed, exchange riffs for about a year, year and a half kind of thing. Um and then we start talking about doing more shows, but these ones will encompass some of the Carl songs as well. Um, you know, am I comfortable singing those songs? Yeah, I'll do it, right? But let's kind of keep it pretty malice-focused. Um, and then over the two years or so after that, you know, we, we, we play shows here and there every few months and eventually are, are playing, you know, a, a wide range of, of Misery Signals material. Um it's not really like it's, I think it's man. It might be a whole two years before uh, I am told that I'm in the band again. Right, so this is maybe three years ago from from right now. Um, but we had you know we had written about four songs by that point. There was some some new material forming, but it was yeah maybe three years ago where we kind of started to be more focused and we were more like yeah Jesse's back in the band and us five are gonna make a go of it again and let's try and and you know complete this record. Out of curiosity, you know, around this time frame, you know, it gets announced that you're in the band. Again, uh Carl, you know, kinda absent uh from making a statement until I think almost a year later. Um, but all that kind of being said, you know, we kind of touched on earlier about, you know, the rediscovery of maybe you as a person who's not in a band. Did you kind of go through the same thing? Like now that you're coming back to Misery Signals where you had to figure out what Misery Signals means to you now currently versus what it did when you had started the project? Was there any of that going on? Oh, certainly. I mean, just as a as a an older individual, a changed individual, um, just what I what product I wanted to put out into the world um, has changed has changed greatly right like when I'm a young fella uh, being being angsty and pissed and uh, being like Vogel or something like that was um, was desirable and fortunately or unfortunately or whatever you want to say I don't know what words should I should use there I go through you know terrible uh, things that help me to create art that is is pissed and uh, that people can connect to i'm able to speak to universal truths using some ela language here um speak to universal truths that the average person can connect can connect to right um but those universal truths were about loss and those universal truths were you know um things that could bring about positivity but they were literally misery signals. They were literally very dark, sort of sorrowful messages or lyrics. Um, and so this time it was important for me as a, as a new father and as an older person to put out a different 
message this time around. Um, and that's obviously challenging within heavy metal and, and hardcore. And as I said before, like most of the best <laughs> heavy music is very pissed off or very sad, very sorrowful. Um, so I knew that we had our work cut out for us this time, but it, it was definitely uh, important to me from very early on on this process to create a very different version of Misery Signals. Um, obviously, it can't be like positivity signals, and I and I I think that we were able to find the balance. You know, there's not a lot of templates to follow. There's not a lot of bands that I know of out there that are super heavy um, musically, but are very positive uh lyrically that don't get into that cheesy territory um you know so it was, it was, a, it was a hard balancing act you know in order to write this record in the way that we did um but it was yeah especially important to me as as a as a new father and stuff to put out a more positive version of the band you know that was actually something I was going to ask you about. You know, you've mentioned Mazzy a few different times throughout the re- uh, not the record, throughout the interview. Um, were there any lyrics that were inspired? Maybe even going back through some old writing, uh, through you know the birth of your child, or things that you heard in the music that made you think of maybe a message or something that you wanted to convey for for her at some point. Yes, but that was the greatest. That was the most challenging. Um, piece of poetry to apply to heavy metal music. Um, and I just don't know that I, I landed that one perfectly. So we wrote 14 or 15 songs for, for Ultraviolet. Um, so there's a, a number of pieces that are left over. One of those that we call Baron um, is is about Mazzy. But it's just, uh, I just don't feel like it uh, it worked out as well as, as I had hoped it to work out. Do you envision maybe being able to, you know, you hear a lot of songwriters and people who, you know, just write in general where they had an idea, couldn't get the concept to work, and then just kind of maybe came back to it at a later date and they go, oh, I thought about it from a different perspective, and then, you know, are able to get it to work the way they had envisioned all along. Do you think maybe, excuse me, do you think maybe Baron is something that with a little more... I don't want to say attention to detail, but maybe a little bit more perspective or uh, not trying to make it fit a deadline of putting out a record at a certain time frame uh, that maybe you could get it to where it is something that you could put out. For sure. So I think that's kind of uh, a true statement to most of the stuff that's left over. It seems that a lot of the stuff that didn't make ultraviolet is the more experimental stuff. Um, and, and I don't mean that just musically, but also maybe uh, lyrically, uh, you know, uh, and vocally. So, um, some of the stuff that's left over, man, one of them called territory is like one of my favorite pieces that we wrote out of in the last five years. So I sure hope that those ones, um, come, come about. I hope that we're able to, uh, finish those pieces. And yeah, Baron, Baron, I know Skeeter, like Brandon, our drummer, it's one was one of his favorite ones. So it's a funny process, right? Like I said, we wrote 14 or 15 songs and, and the nine that are on ultraviolet are the nine that we are all like, okay, yeah, we can, we all agree. Those are, are, are good numbers. Um, but some of the ones that are left over were, were, uh, uh, some of our favorites, you know, or some of our individual favorites. So we're discussing that, like what the future holds at this point with the band, if we're going to release those ones, um, what that looks like. But there's not been any concrete decisions made in that regard. You know, kind of speaking to Ultraviolet a little bit more, I mean, you know, you want to kind of talk about a little bit of a, 
I don't want to say out of left field because it's definitely not out of left field, but a song that I was like, wow, I'm kind of surprised at the arrangement of it and some of the stuff being done vocally and so forth. Uh, the song Old Ghosts. I kind I mean, I get why Tempest and I get why uh, River King are the two songs that, you know, kind of were chosen because they kind of fit more of, I guess, what everyone would expect out of a, a Misery Signals release, uh, especially given what had come before. But to me, Old Ghost, it's, it's a, there's just something about it that feels a little bit different. And the only thing I kind of kept saying, and even when texting with Greg, and I think I even mentioned to you, was it just feels like it's it's driving at all times. It's just always moving forward. And not saying that the band doesn't have songs that do that, but there's just something about this that feels new that I haven't heard the band do. And I I don't know if... I, I'm interested to see how people feel about this song. I mean, I'm kind of looking at the numbers of the, the listens, and it is right up there with uh, you know some of the songs that have been listened to the most. So I, I think that kind of speaks to the fact that I think a lot of people are going to like this song. I agree. Um, I think it's sort of the most... Uh... I don't know. Tempest is like this too, right? Like it's sort of like this typical metal core, metal core uh, structured song. And I think Kyle and Stuart and I bring that element to the band. We, we come from more like punk rock and rock and roll backgrounds than the Morgans do, who come from, you know, their father's literally um, a percussionist in the Madison Symphony Orchestra. Um, and I think Old Ghost is kind of a good example as the Tempest is of us kind of <laughs> massaging the Morgans into trying uh, into creating more of a verse chorus verse chorus right typical rock and roll structure of a song and I know that's going to get us in trouble because I know that there's going to be some people out there uh, that want the you know 17 riffs <laughs> in a song or whatever but uh, it was important to us. It was another thing that for surely early on we discussed and we attempted to do, um, you know, was to whittle these songs down and not have them be and justice for all pieces, all of them, you know, like to have them more condensed, have them put more time in, into the songwriting in, in ways, right? Like I'm not knocking what seven angels did or what we did in the past or um, that style of songwriting. It's just that we did that. And this time we were just attempting to do something a little bit different. And I think old ghosts speaks to that. And um, it's one of the ones that, that I liked early on. And I think one of the ones that sort of us rock and roll guys in the band really liked, but one that we had to convince the Morgans was, was worthwhile because it is, it is a more straightforward piece. Right. So um, yeah, I, th I think it's just it's different kind of people like different uh, misery signals songs. And I think old ghosts and tempest are that more straight ahead rock and roll metal core tune, you know, and there's, a lot of other crazy experimental pieces on the record for people to latch on to as well. So I'm glad you like it. And uh, yeah, my experience thus far in sharing the record with people is it, it is one that um, is generally well liked. So uh, John, you have some people that agree with you. <laughs> I think the record as a whole, like I think it flows really well. And, and I think that's kind of the strength of old ghosts leading into the, the latter half of the record is I think the songwriting on this, like you said, is kind of, I don't want to say straightforward, but it's not lingering where it doesn't need to. It just, it, it feels very to the point. It feels, I guess for lack of a better term, it feels grown up. It feels like the grown up version of Misery Signals. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's uh, I think it's better songwriting. I think it's more focused songwriting. I think there's more time put into 
um, bringing parts back into repetition, you know, and in the past it was repetition was something that we avoided in the past because we saw it as uh, too rock and roll, you know, but repetition is something that we as human beings love in, in, in lyrical content and, and musical content. Like we want to hear that hook again. We want to hear that part again, you know? So I think we've been guilty of in the past of some of the great parts, not doing them long enough or not doing them as many times as we should have. Um, and I'm not saying on this new record that we, you know, it's just pure verse course, verse course, pop kind of songwriting, but there is more of an attempt at creating um, well-constructed songs that have repetition and have repeating parts as opposed to the 17 riffs in a row. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it is everything I would want out of a misery signals record in 2020 personally. Um, you know, kind of speaking to, again, more about the record itself, since by the time this will come out, people will, you know, presumably have heard more of it or maybe even have a, have it at that point. I don't know. Still debating on when I'm going to drop this. Um, you know, River King, the video you guys, you know, put out for that. And I couldn't help but wonder the cons, the treatment for the video, you know, basically is you dragging, you know, we know it's a body, but then it's revealed at the end, I guess maybe spoilers if you haven't seen it, but, um, that it's you burying yourself. So I kind of wanted to know, you know, given some of the stuff that we've been talking about, is that sort of a metaphor for kind of burying the past? Uh, you know, uh, that was Ryan's concept. Uh, I think Stuart had talked about something like that with, for the Tempest as well. It was this kind of idea that, that had existed. I know, uh, amongst the guitar players. Now, We've never uh, yeah, explicitly talked about this yet, whether this was, you know, if that's what Ryan is, is trying to get at. It makes sense, you know, like you can, we can impose a whole lot of things, I guess, on, on to, onto art afterwards, right, if we want to. Is that what, was that what Ryan was um, intending right from the get-go? I don't know, because I haven't had that conversation with him at this point yet, but, uh, you know, it, given the history of the band, it makes sense. I think it, it works uh, lyrically. Um, so I, th- I think it's a cool idea <laughs> that Ryan had. But yeah, it's not something that we um, talked a whole bunch about. Okay. Yeah, it was just kind of something I kind of picked up on initially where I was like, okay, it's a body. And I didn't know who it was. So when it was revealed to you, I was like, you know, kind of made me focus a little bit more on the lyrics again. And then I was like, is there something in this song that kind of is speaking to you, even if it's just more of like an allegory of, you know, burying your past or letting go of something that maybe is the dead weight of you? Um, so there was just a lot of metaphors that I kind of was trying to maybe grasp at to to make it make sense for me. Uh, and maybe yeah, it was just... That's good, man. That's awesome. That's That's what we want you to do. I mean, sometimes when I think of these things, I'm always like, God, am I am I just looking for something that is just not there, <laughs> just to make sense no, of it for myself? You're not the first person to to say that idea to me, to express those uh, that sentiment to me. Um, and yeah, I don't think Ryan Ryan was probably conscious of that, right? Like, I don't think he was just trying to come up with some horror kind of thing or whatever. I think that it was probably a, a fairly well thought out thing like most of the things that Ryan Morgan does. <laughs> um, something that was kind of interesting about the process of this record is, you know, it, it and I've been saying this to Greg mainly, um, 
it felt like all eras of the band have been very well represented uh, sonically and even the behind the scenes stuff, you know, like you did pre-pro with uh, Devin Townsend, who had done uh, Malice with you guys, had done Controller with the other guys as well. Um, Greg coming back in after doing Absent Light, you know, there's there's just tie-ins left and right uh, of all eras of Misery Signals. And, the, us- the usual suspect. Yes. Um, now, something that I did wonder because of almost seeming like there was a lot of thought put into kind of just creating like and having everyone be a part of it adversely was there ever any consideration to maybe have carl come into a guest vocal spot just to kind of really cement kind of the all eras aspect that it felt like was going into this project for ultraviolet not all members of the band are comfortable uh with that Okay. I can speak personally. Uh, I would welcome uh, Mr. Schubach back with open arms. I would uh, think it would be really a cool cap, a good bookend, you know, to have him come back. In the same manner, right, that the kill switch just did. Like, um, I think I can, I feel a great amount of sympathy and empathy for Carl because I, we're both Canadian kids. We both joined this American band. We both, uh, feel that we had um, not the best of experiences in that band in that time. We, uh, and then that thing got taken away from both of us, you know. Um, this is a hard conversation, or, you know, a hard question to answer, Johnny, because I myself am not totally fine with with how everything happened with Carl. I'm not fine with how everything happened with me initially. Um, I just know that playing in a band is challenging and playing in a band that doesn't make a whole bunch of money and stays together for a long time is extremely challenging. Absolutely. And to keep four or five people all focused, you know, harnessing that energy and moving towards the same goal for long periods of time is uh, next to impossible. And I think that as much as it hurt for me to get kicked out of the band, um, as I said before, you know, I'm pretty much glad that, that happened that I went to university and I'm glad that they continued on without me. Some of the stuff they did without me, I think is, is fantastic, great heavy metal. And I'm, I'm glad that they blessed the world world with it. You know, um, when I came back, it was not to, uh, usurp the throne. It was not to take Carl's spot. I truly believe that there'd just be no misery signals. If we hadn't done malice X, I just think that absent light would have been the end and the brothers might have gone on to do instrumental stuff together or something, but you know, I think just so many things happened in those in those few years there that I think they probably would not have continued on had we not come back to do Malice X. Um, and yeah, I'm just I'm thankful that we were able to 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 put out Ultraviolet. I'm thankful that we were able to you know uh, harness the energy at least this one last time uh, and. Uh, my hope, man, is that they that they do something with Carl. My hope is that they we do a tour all together one day. That Greg comes back, that Jeffrey comes back. You know that that everybody who contributed to this band um, has a chance to sort of say their farewells. Um, and I know that can be cheesy and stuff like that. And I don't know that everyone's on. I, you know, I don't know that everyone's on the same page as me in 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 that regard. But. <clears throat> I think that I'm also uh, in a special position to relate and empathize with Mr. Schubach more than than probably the others, just because we experienced much the same things. Yeah, that's totally understandable. I 
honestly, <laughs> when you sent me the record, I was really expecting there to be a Carl guest feature somewhere. Because like I said, it just seemed like all signs were pointing to we're really kind of trying to do this right and kind of encapsulate everything that this band has gone through all eras of the band and kind of represent it fairly. Uh, like I said, you know, when talking about ultraviolet, I feel like the fact that it feels like a misery signals record that I would expect in 2020, it feels grown up. It feels like it's matured just like I have in the time frame of being a fan of this band. And the fact you're bringing Devin in, you're bringing Greg back, you know, it just, it just felt like that was going to happen. So like when it didn't, I kind of was like, huh? Okay. I get, and it's like, I totally understand from all the press releases and so forth that have been put out from all the camps involved and so forth. It's like, I get it, but I really thought that I was going to open this up and, and find that little hidden gem where it's like, ah, fuck, they did it. That's so cool. Hopefully, hopefully that gems down the road, buddy, from, from my point of view, like, um, I, I, you know, I can't, I can't speak for anyone other than myself, but they're just, the, the, you know, there was a lot of years in between me coming, you know, me getting kicked out and me coming back, um, you know, for healing and the same amount of time, you know, is, is now kind of, there's been a lot of time now between him, him being kicked out or whatever. And, and, and now I just think as we were writing this record, they weren't quite in a, at a point where they were willing to, um, entertain that, that idea very much. So, and it was a challenge already, right? Like I said, like this has been such a, um, a different record for us to write because we are so geographically spread apart and we are also entrenched in other things in life, right? Like we're fathers and we're, um, you know, everyone has different professions and, and commitments. So yeah, the Carl thing never, never played out this time, but I, I'm not saying that it never will. Cause I, I actually hope that that's something down the road. Uh, I hope that there's some sort of, you know, healing for those guys. I, don't necessarily know how to to leave it on a, a brighter spot. Almost serendipitously, it feels like maybe that's kind of how this chat should end, given the nature of the band itself and its its uh its message usually of uh you know kind of there being hope, but also being a realist uh with with the things that life has handed you. Um, I'm really excited for this record. I'm I'm excited to see and have people listen to it. Um, the few people I know that have it have i mean i've gotten to nerd out with one person i know that had it who got it through stew and it was just like when i finally i was like dude holy shit this song oh man this part and he's like dude i know i haven't been able to talk to anyone about it so it's been i feel like fans that have been fans for a long time are gonna do that they're gonna re-fall in love with this band i think it's going to kind of make the pseudo sour note of absent light and some of the kind of uncertainty around that era of the band it'll kind of all pay off because I think this is a a great record, a comeback record of sorts for you guys on so many levels. And I'm really excited for for you guys to to get your just due. I'm excited that uh, hopefully I'll actually be able to see you perform with this band at some point if you ever make it to the Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm I'm just there's a, a lot of optimistic hope, and that's something that actually I, I had kind of made the comment to Greg about is I feel like this is a more hopeful record than there has been, uh, from, from the band. Well, that makes me very happy. My, my good man, because, uh, that was definitely, uh, an intent that we had. So we're very, uh, thankful that you are enjoying the music and very thankful for, uh, all the love that we've been shown so far, because it has sure been a crazy journey, man. So I thank you, uh, for, 
your patience and, and, and waiting for this interview and, and waiting for the music. And thanks to all the people for, for supporting us. Um, we are very grateful. It's never lost on us. Well, I want to take the time as we're wrapping up now uh, to thank you for not blowing me off over the, the many years of me bothering you to do this. Um, I really appreciate the time you've taken, you've given in the, uh, the honesty and sincerity in which you've you know handled everything that I've asked you. I mean, I know some of these things maybe weren't easy to answer or to discuss, um, but I think that's something that you especially have kind of always done is even if it's uncomfortable or whatever, that you've always handled it with a, a grace uh, that is very admirable. So I want to thank you for taking the time to do this and uh, talking about everything that's gone on with the band and you. And uh, this feels a little disingenuous to ask, but uh, where can everyone find you or the band online? Uh, so mostly, I think the best thing these days is just Instagram and Facebook. Like we still have uh, the Misery Signals page up .com or no.net, but that's really not uh, the most updated and best way. So I would say uh, at Misery Signals on Instagram and uh, just Misery Signals on Facebook is is where you're going to get the most up-to-date information and, uh, yeah, just stay connected to us. Well, thank you so much for the time and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks so much, buddy. You have uh, a very lovely day out east and, uh, well, not out east, in the Midwest, well, east of me. So that was my conversation with Jesse Zraska of Misery Signals. Um, so when this conversation was done, and I literally got done doing it and walked out to uh, go hang out with my wife and our friend who was in from uh, Oregon, uh, they were like, how was it? Because, you know, they <laughs> were waiting for me to get done with it. And I was like, I just kind of was like, <sighs> um, yeah, it was real and intense and... You know, there were times, especially when I listened back to it to edit it, you know, there was a couple of moments where we balanced being jokey with each other and kind of having like making light of something to then getting right back into being real and raw and vulnerable. And a couple of times, like when that happened and we kind of just slid right back into being serious, it was like, man, I just feel like this is so this is so important. And I know that sounds so shitty to to say that something I was I did and was a part of is so important, but I, I feel like for me, you know, as Dan was kind of alluding to in the beginning, you know, we've done like 250 episodes, or I, you know, more to the point, I've done 250 episodes of this, and to still be able to pull some of these things out, where like I feel like this is one of the best representations of someone where to be like, what's your show about? I would honestly show them this and be like, I know it's long in the tooth, but like. This, this is what this show can be when given the opportunity. And I don't know if that's really pre pretentious of me to say, but I mean, I look at so many of the episodes we've done over the 250 episodes. I mean, even the, you know, the episode that, you know, Dan and I did with uh, Joey Gonzalez of Philip and Philip and Selmo and the illegals, like, you know, we kind of bounce from being serious to, to having jokes and laughing and, and stuff like that. Same with Dan's episode with Scott from Zayo, you know, like they were having, you know, long lost friends kind of talking and then, you know, got serious and then, you know, some real shit happened in it. And oh, yeah. to me, that's, that's kind of the thing that I love about podcasting when it's able to kind of not have any constraints of any, any kind of, you know, having the guests coming in and going, I'm willing to just, be real and honest and 
I can't thank Jesse enough for doing that because a lot of the questions I asked toward the end, I could definitely see him being like, nope, next question. And this is a long time coming too. You know, this isn't just like some little interview. I mean, John's been telling me that he's going to be doing this interview since (laughs) I started on the show. He's like, yeah, dude, I got, you know, eventually we're going to do the misery signals episode to the point where I got impatient and did a misery signals episode myself on my other podcast. Uh, But like, you know, this is this has been like what three years in the making. Three years. It is officially the longest guest I have been going after um, for the podcast. So now, as of right now, that's it. This this is the last big guest I've been working on for this long. Uh, Jesse holds the crown. Uh, I'm just sorry. I'm just so excited. Everything misery signals right now that I I'm having a little bit of trouble. Like, I know I look like totally dead inside. If you're watching this video, but like. I'm uh and that's another thing too, you know, I want to throw out there too, like look at where we're at now versus where we were then in the sense that like you know, we, when we record episodes now, we record them, you know, John records half the interviews on Instagram live now. And um and and like you guys get to watch that. You get to see us kind of make the episodes every week and um it's cool. We're like in a totally different place now. Like it's weird that I'm like talking about the video while we're doing just the audio portion of it, but like I think it's cool. I think it's fun to interact and I think it's come a long way from just like two dudes being like, Yeah, I mean, maybe we could get Howard Jones on this thing. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think to that and you know, something that we have been talking about is I think it actually goes back to the name change. We were cutting out us, I mean, those who are literally watching right now, you can see Dan drinking beer. You can see me drinking a beer. You can, you know, that's something we always were doing. We were always sharing, like, oh, I'm drinking this, or I made this cocktail, or I, whatever. And the thing was, is, you know, as I kept listening to other podcasts that I was into, I would just constantly find any tidbit of the person I was listening to and getting to know more about them that I was like, oh, I enjoy getting to know who these people are because it makes a broader connection with what they do. And so that's where Brutally Speaking was formed from. A, this conversation is a great example of the brutally honest, brutally speaking part of it and and conversation part, but the show name itself started because Dan and I would just bullshit for an hour. Like, you might only hear... 15, 20 minutes on any given episode, Dan and I usually talk for probably two, three hours, at least once a week. Yeah, it's really funny, actually, (laughs) how little we actually do of the show. Yeah. So it just became a thing where it's like, okay, like, why not stream what we're doing while we're doing it? Because, I mean, it creates a little bit like, you know, we get to, people get to see how the sauce is made, good, bad, or indifferent. People can see us fucking up. And you know what? Something that I constantly see on and hear on a lot of the podcasts I listen to is, you know, make your own thing. Just go do the thing you love and, and don't take failure for an option. And this show, as stressful as it has been at times, especially when we were doing two episodes a week, which I'm sure Dan was ready to fucking quit at any any moment. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's a thing where, to me, I hope people can see this and see that, you know, you can have a co-host who lives in a completely different state and still find time to do this, still find time to put out decent content week in and week out. And I think it also speaks to the Misery Signals camp, too. Those guys live so far away from each other and live completely different lives, but they're still able to get together, even after all the differences they all went through, and put out 
probably one of my favorite records in the band's discography, and I, I can't wait for everyone to hear this record. I've I've heard it. It's awesome. You can I talk got, about it. I can I talk about it my lot too because like I I wasn't sure. Um, I mean we can talk about it. No one's hearing the music. I remember when you dropped it on me. You were like, like don't don't like give this to anybody, <laughs> you know. And uh, yeah, which I which I which I did not. The link we got wasn't a press release link like normally we get. Yeah. It was a straight-up link from the band, so it's like, there's no watermark, there's no nothing, so it's like, this can't get out. So, in that regard, yeah, absolutely not. Dude, <laughs> can't share that with anyone. Dude, it's hard, because, like, I did an interview for uh, Discuss Metal the other night um, with a guy uh, named Josiah Lyle, who played in Mouth of the South and uh, Rival Choir, and um, we were talking about Misery Signals. Um, and, and, you know, how much we love that band or whatever. And he's like, yeah, man, be really cool, you know, to finally hear that, hear, hear that new record and, uh, and hear what they got going on. And I'm just like, you know, (laughs) I have no problem telling people, like, if I have a record and it's not out, I have no problem being like, wait until you hear the rest of this thing. Like, you know, when everyone was all about like, oh, what's this new ghost inside going to sound like? And I was like, I've heard it. Yeah. Really fucking good. (laughs) Yeah, dude, that, Yeah. That's that. That's probably you know one of the hardest things about what we do is is understanding when to be discreet, but also being such hardcore music fans that it's like really hard not to be like, oh my god, listen to this. This is so good, <laughs> you know. I mean, shoot, how many? I mean, how many? How, how much weird stuff have we heard that was privy to just us? I know, um, the blood has been shed. <laughs> uh song idea i guess is what i'll call it um it's hard it's hard to be secretive about stuff like that like you know i get it i get why people leak things i'm not going to but i get why people do it yeah no it's it is one of those things where the show has afforded us some very interesting uh opportunities um you know to to do and be a part of some cool shit so um, this one being no different. I mean, getting to hear the, the record uh, before everyone else and really getting to take it all in and, you know, try to, you know, at least discuss it with, with Jesse. Um, I think this is just a phenomenal record. I, I can't wait for everyone else to hear it. I think, you know, I kind of said it in the interview. Um, I think Greg kind of unfairly took a lot of the brunt of how absent light came out being the guitar player and the mixer um or i'm sorry the producer he didn't mix it it was actually steve evans who who mixed that record um but was a thing where you know this this felt like a a, a project where they wanted all area eras and facets of misery signals to be represented on the record and it it just sounds you know i said it in the interview a couple of times and i'll say it again it it just sounds like a grown-up misery signals that we would want and expect in 2020. Um, I think if you were a fan of a malice, that definitely that vibe is on this record. Yeah, yeah. If you were a fan of controller or uh, mirrors, there's facets of that that are definitely represented on this record. Absent light to a degree. Uh, there's definitely a little bit of that as well. Um, the only thing, and I, and I don't really know if I read too much into this uh, or not, but is it almost sounded like maybe this is the end. 
I don't want to comment on that because I'm historically wrong. Whenever I read, <laughs> whenever whenever I read into things like that too much, so I'm gonna just keep my mouth shut. Fair enough. Well, <laughs> um, I guess this is as good as a spot as any to uh, wrap this episode up. Um, if you would like to keep up with Misery Signals, you can find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Misery Signals. Head on over to MiserySignalsMusic.com. You can still pre-order this record as of when this is dropping. Go pick up this record. Uh, if you are a fan of the first two singles that are out right now, unless one has dropped since we recorded this, uh, <laughs> I can't say good enough things. As soon as I got this record, because I was, at the time when I got it, I hadn't heard any of the, the stuff really. And I definitely, as soon as I got this record, I pre- hit my pre-order button and there is one coming to me and I cannot wait to add this to my record collection. Same. Absolutely same. This is this is probably a strong contender for my top albums of the year. Uh, so go support the guys. Um, it's been a long time coming to have this record come, especially as longtime Misery Signals fans. Uh, it is definitely worth your money. Support them. Again, Misery Signals dot me- Again, MiserySignalsMusic.com. Go pick up that pre-order. And uh, again, Ultraviolet comes out August 7th. So as of when you're hearing this, you only got a couple more weeks to go. And uh, I'm hoping, hoping, hoping uh, once all of this pandemic shit clears up, we can see this band live. I've never gotten to see Jesse perform with the band. And I'm very much looking forward to hearing not only some of the newer stuff, but some of the old classic stuff. And honestly, even the stuff with uh, the Carl era stuff with Jesse doing it. Um I would love to hear him on some of the controller era stuff. I think his voice, I mean, on this record just sounds huge. So, um, like I said, very much looking forward to that. Uh, I blabbed on enough. Dan can tell you where he can be found, uh, on the internet. <laughs> well, the, the biggest place that you can find me is at discussmetal.com, uh, which hosts my other 5,000 podcasts, uh, discography discussion and discuss metal being the ones that you've probably heard of. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at DiscussMetalDan. You can send me an email anytime you want to at DiscussMetalDan at gmail.com. Uh, you can find me on Facebook under Daniel Terry. So, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm kind of all over the place, man. And if you would like to keep up with this podcast, simple enough, Bruce Speak Pod, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. If you would like to keep up with us just as a central hub, BruceSpeakPod.com. Go ahead and just add that to your bookmarks. Uh, that's fine. And, uh, you know, it shows all of our merch. It has all of our episodes. The latest episode is on the featured podcast page. Uh, pretty much anything you need to know about us is over there. Uh, again, thanks to Jen over at Purple Jen. Uh, if you need a website being built, go ahead and check her out. Uh, very affordable rates. Very easy to work with. Fast turnaround. Uh, I think our website speaks for itself. And... Uh, yeah, I just want to thank everyone. 250 episodes, and you know, I feel like we're doing a lot of things right now that uh, are going to hopefully propel us for the next 250 and beyond. Um, you know, it's crazy listening to some of the podcasts I listen to. You know, Just is in the upper 500s. Uh, the ID10 podcast, formerly the Nerdist podcast, is in the almost 1100 uh, episode mark. Uh, WTF is in the way up there. And it's crazy, you know, when I started this and probably speaking to Dan as well with his podcasts, um, you know, you don't assume you're going to hit these milestones. So when you do, they feel extra special. And to be able to commemorate those with an episode like this, uh, which is kind of a, a an all-encompassing episode that kind of is where the show started from and kind of where we hope to go and, and everything in between. Um, so if you have been following us for all of it, some of it, just recently, just this episode, thank you. 
Um, this uh, this is a, a crazy, crazy episode for so many reasons, and uh, it's just wild that we're here. 250 episodes, and we got some bangers on, on deck, too, um, that are... I think hopefully going to uh, also get some people really excited about this show. Um, and uh, another and another thing we're really thankful for, you know, 250 episodes in, a lot of podcasts, uh, you know, have to pay for things out of their pocket and so forth. And, you know, they, they hope and dream of being able to break even. And thankfully, you know, we have some sponsors that have come on in the last uh, year or so. And we have greatly appreciated them. Uh, and that starts with the Bean Bastard. They are our longest-running sponsor. Uh, two dudes out of Buffalo, New York. It's Nicholas Maruso, formerly, currently, I guess, still, if it dies today, the drummer. Uh, go back through. Uh, that was one of the first episodes we did, uh, talking to Nick about his uh, addiction to drinking and his road to recovery and basically falling in love with coffee. And as a result, starting the Bean Bastard. So again, someone who started something completely different as a byproduct of uh, uh, needing an escape from something else. Um, so head on over to TheBeanBastard.com, get some delicious coffee. They have candles. They have they actually have cold brew now. I need to get me some of that. Um, they're doing really cool things, and it's great to see that company growing and how much they've grown over the last couple of years uh, since they started. And uh, Bean Bastard. <clears throat> and on point palmade uh maddie mullins uh frequent guest on the show has been on i think two times maybe three i can't remember um i think it's always just two. okay always uh always so soft-spoken and just the nicest guy you'll ever meet southern hospitality down to a t um the guy is just aces in my book um has created a, a really great product i don't have it in my hair currently for those watching but um the pomade and the beard oil. I can't speak to the beard oil currently. I need but... I need to get some of the beard oil because my beard's getting a little out of control, man. Yeah, I'll uh, send someone. I get some money here in a couple of weeks. And uh, yeah, the pomade though it works real great. It's a great. It's a. It's so good. It, it's so stupid to say how good this pomade is, but as someone who actually styles my hair quite a bit and has gone through so many different pomades, it is absurd the things that I don't like about a lot of pomades and this really doesn't have anything that I don't like about it. It works real easily. It doesn't leave that greasy, shitty feeling in your hands. It stays in your hair for a while. You can even the next day, like it still holds like the hold is just great. And that's what you want from a pomade. Um, so use our code BSP 15 over at onpointpalmade.com. Get 15% off your total purchase order. Let them know that we are sending you over there uh, and thanking them for supporting us. And lastly, but not leastly is rockabilia.com. They are a newer sponsor in comparison to the other two, but they have just been so great to work with. Uh, they have over 500,000 items on their online store. You don't have to to worry about any of the quality <clears throat> you don't have to worry about the integrity of any of the, the shirts or anything uh they are 100 officially licensed through the band so not only are you supporting rockabilly when you buy from them you're also supporting the bands that you love as well and that's a win-win for everybody and, and us and us especially if you use our code brew 15 you get 15 percent off your total purchase order they have everything from lamb of god candles to testament gloves to house the tv show t-shirts Oh, I got to get some Testament gloves for sure. Use our code BREW15 and make sure you get 15% off your total purchase order. Let all of our sponsors know that you are supporting them for supporting us. And for the Brutally Speaking Podcast, for our 250th time, I am John. And I am Dan. 
Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.